It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So, I don't know what it would be like if someone was just coming to the podcast right now and seeing episode 36 uh, in a series. But, uh, you know, I want all of my messages to sort of be standalones in a certain regard. However, when you're in a series this long, there's a lot of building blocks. And World War I, uh, since that's what this series is on, Spiritual Lessons from World War I, is a very complex uh, storyline. And which is, I think, possibly one of the reasons why it's maybe faded in history a little more. First of all, I think it's been overshadowed by World War II. And World War II has some very defining characters uh, in it. Uh, when you think of like Adolf Hitler, you think of Winston Churchill, you think of uh, Franklin Roosevelt, you think of Benito Mussolini. These are like some of the most famous characters in history, whereas World War I, most people have never heard of uh, Kaiser Wilhelm II, Nicholas II, uh, Alfred I. Uh, they're not necessarily characters. Even Woodrow Wilson, the president of the United States at that time, is sort of like a, heh. You know, yeah, I've heard his name, you know, when we read through all the presidents, but don't know a thing about him. And that's interesting to me because this period of four years in history from 1914 through 1918 is possibly the most formative time in maybe any four years in all of history except for when Jesus came to this earth. I mean, it's like, it's massive in its impact. And so part of what we are going through right now is we're right in the epicenter of the earthquake of World War I because what we've seen is the start of World War I, we've seen the stalemate of World War I and the, uh, the trench warfare that is going to ensue. We've seen both sides attempt to strategize to break through the stalemate and uh, be unsuccessful. And we've seen millions of men gobbled up in the process. It's a, it's a terrible story, it really is. At the same time, it's an important one that has a tremendous amount of spiritual lessons, which is what we've been carving out in this time. And you'll notice, I, if you were to follow through the whole series, I haven't spent a lot of time on people getting shot or blown up. Uh, there's a lot of that that you could get, you know, morbidly fascinated with uh, in this uh, storyline. I'm not fascinated with that side. There are certain aspects of it where I think of what it would be like for me being in a trench and being a soldier and needing to respond to the circumstances around me. That's very intriguing to me as a man, harder to translate into a Daily Thunder series. And so I haven't emphasized that. If some of you have wondered, it's like, man, Eric has skipped over almost all the war uh, well, no, war is on two levels. It's on what leads to it and how you think it through, and the other one is the engagement with a bullet. And that's not the part that I've chosen to focus on in this time. And I actually think it's been a, more edifying because of it. If you were to compare it straight across the board with something I could have done, you would probably agree with me. So uh, since you can't really compare it because I haven't given you anything to compare it with, you'd maybe you could argue in your mind about that. But I, I really don't, I'm not attracted to bloodshed. I'm not attracted to people just dying. I'm interested in how we win things. As, as believers, I want to know what the challenges are, how the enemy works, and then how we see victory uh, gained. Uh, <clears throat> this message has been one that I've chewed on this one for years. And so it's interesting to finally arrive at it, uh, even before I knew I was going to do a series. This is one of those haunting storylines in the last 100 and what it was it been like 100 and uh, I don't know how long it's been 105 106 years whatever it has been uh, and uh, it is a it's the beginnings of what we know as communism and communism is such a, a great evil that has swept across this world anyone that that comes from uh, Russia, uh, Ukraine, and comes over to the United States and they see us flirting with these notions uh, here in America uh, are just like, you guys have no idea what you're messing with. And so communism is going to sprout or maybe I could say it's going to gain its wings uh, in and through the year of 1917. 
which is right where we're at. We just went through in this last message called the Zimmerman Blunder. We talked about this period of time between February 1st and April 6th. And right in the middle of that, we are going to have something called the February Revolution uh, in Russia. And the Russian calendar and our calendar are different, so it actually would be March to us. So it's a little confusing when you hear uh, a February Revolution and the dates are in March, right? That doesn't make any sense. And some massive things are going to begin to shake up the Russian Empire. And they've had a a government run by the Romanov family, so kings have descended from one king to the next, and Nicholas II is basically, he's called the Tsar of Russia, but he's a king, he's a Caesar over this, this territory. It's the largest territory in the world, and he is going to fall or be deposed or be dethroned. He's actually going to abdicate his throne, which means forsake it and give it up because of the pressure but it's a massive moment in history when this happens. So this is part 36, The Devil in the Boxcar. That's actually named after an article uh, that I'm going to quote throughout this, so, uh, which is, it's a well-named thing. I've tried to change this, this title multiple times. I had The Dangerous Man was on my screen just a few minutes before I ended up coming here and I changed it the last minute back to The Devil in the Boxcar because it just says it so well. So here's our Tsar Nicholas II. This message isn't about him, but uh, he is. Monday's message is going to have more to do with him, even though it's more indirect. But he's the king of Russia, and you notice I just said the deposed king of Russia. Mid-March, he is going to step down from his throne, which is going to create an instability in this nation that it has never experienced. And when you don't have a key, clear leadership, everyone wants Nicholas out, but then when he leaves, now you have instability. Even a bad leader can create a certain level of stability. At least you know who's boss. Now no one knows who's boss, and everyone's fighting to be boss. So here's our map of Europe in 1914, and I'm going to put a star up uh, in the uh, way up at the top of the screen in Russia, and that's St. Petersburg. In this war, it's going to be called Petrograd because St. Petersburg sounded too German. And since they're fighting the Germans, they actually changed the name to Petrograd, uh, which makes a lot of sense to all of us, I'm guessing. And uh, I'm going to show what are called the fronts of the war for Germany. So on that map, you see the, the nation of Germany, the northernmost sort of reddish maroon color. And you're going to see that Germany is fighting on three sides. It's basically two sides, but you know, because the, the side of Italy is still sort of part of what we could call the Western Front. But that attention that they're paying to Russia is draining their resource at a massive level. It's a huge front that they're fighting against Russia, and Russia has endless men to throw into this meat grind, is what it's oftentimes called. And so the Germans are getting desperate, and they want to do whatever they can. And when they see this revolution taking place in Russia, then they realize they have an opportunity to destabilize Russia. Just imagine, if you're the Germans, imagine doing this. Imagine seeing Russia fall to pieces, and they have certain factions in their government that want to stop their involvement in the war. Well, if you were Germany, you would want to sponsor those factions, and you would want to give them encouragement, and you would want to help them in any way you could, because if, if Russia pulls out of this war, then Germany can pull millions of its troops and throw them into the Western Front. I mean, this is like, Germany could win this. Just because Russia is falling to pieces, Germany could win this. So... Uh, I guess I'm going to call this the practical joke principle. This is something Hudson and I were jabbering about uh, when we were driving into uh, Ellerslie, or maybe it was, I don't remember, maybe it was Wednesday, and we were talking about practical jokes. Neither of us like practical jokes. Harper really likes practical jokes. So like April 1st is a big day for Harper. Harper is sort of like her, it's like almost her second birthday. And whereas Hudson and I don't really like practical jokes, and it's a simple principle that if you don't like practical jokes, you don't play practical jokes on other people. Why? Because you play a practical joke and it's going to come back on your head, okay? And so uh, I've always tried to avoid practical jokes, but we were talking about a practical joke that I played on my brother, which is sort of funny to think that I even did it because it's like I am the last guy to ever play a practical joke because I wouldn't want my brother doing this to me. 
And it was funny, Hudson's response was, yeah, that's really funny. However, if someone did that to me, I'd be really mad. Uh, and so I, I snuck into my brother's room when he was sleeping, and I stuck a alarm clock. I don't know what, what I did with it. I hid it somewhere in his room, you know, like in a sock or something in a drawer. And then it just goes off, and I'm peering around the corner, and, you know, it's like, dee 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 and he's like, <laughs> and he's like banging around trying to turn this thing off. And I thought it was tremendously delightful. But the fact that I did that is high-level risk, you know, because my brother can retaliate. And there is something to that. And so I'm calling it the practical joke principle. If you don't want them done to you, then don't deal them out to others. You know, it's just sort of the simple rule of thumb in practical jokes, joke, jokering, uh, jokestering. Uh, Matthew 7, 12. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus, in a unique way, is summarizing what, he could, what we could call the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. He's, he's summarizing the grand message of it all. In other words, there's a simple rule of thumb, and that is the way that you want to be treated, that's how you treat someone else, and you've got it figured out right there. Isn't that just an interesting thing to think of a summation that simple, that this is the law and the prophets, right there, you've got it down, that if you were to consider being in their skin, how would you desire to be treated? All right, that's how you treat them then. And if you were all, all of us were to consider that, it actually is a fascinating thing because that applies to every situation in life. And it elevates the behavior of men, but what we find is that since we are selfish, this is not that easy to fulfill. And so even though we may know the golden rule, we have a tendency to behave after a lower uh, behavior pattern, which is sin in the flesh, which is why Christianity is so significant in the story of history, because it changes man and frees him from his bondage to sinful behavior and to self-behavior to actually live this out, to live in such a way that I can treat everyone around me the way I would desire them to treat me. And so we can actually fulfill this very principle. The neighbor test, the proving of our health. So when we think of the word neighbor, we think of the person living next door to us. And I don't think that's wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that it, technically a neighbor is anyone in our sphere, anyone within our range. So right now you would be one of my neighbors. And you know the people around me across the street would be part of my range of influence. They, if they can see me, I can see them. That's, that's the principle of mirrors. Have you ever uh, heard the mirror principle? If you can see someone, like when I'm looking through the rearview mirror and I see one of my kids in the back seat, if they can see my eyes, uh, then then I can see their eyes. Or if they know that if they can see my eyes, I'm seeing their eyes. And so that's a principle of the mirror. Sim similar with your neighbor. It's sort of like if you can see them, they can see you. If, if they're your neighbor, you're their neighbor. It's like we're in each other's range. And there's a neighbor test. How we handle that which with, is within our range is an important proving of the quality of our soul. And here's the statement Jesus is going to say in Matthew 12. Jesus answered him, First of all, the commandments is, the command, all, first of all, first, oh boy, I'm really having a tough time with this one. The first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment, and the second, like it, is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so what we see is Jesus elevating, it's almost like he's simplifying the entire Old Testament for us with some of these statements. He's like, oh, it's all summed up in this. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Oh, it's just summed up in this. You need to realize God is one, and you need to love him with everything, and you need to love your neighbor as yourself. And in so saying, in so describing, you've, you've put all, of, all things together. So there's a statement that I'm going to build on in this message, back upon your own head. You could say return upon your own head. However, when you behave opposite of this pattern that Jesus is describing, and you do unto others as you wouldn't want done unto you, 
then usually what happens is the same behavior that you're dishing out, which you wouldn't want done to you, ends up being done to you, even if it's not by the same party. And it's sort of like the practical joke principle that I was describing, but if you don't want something done to you, then don't do it to someone else, right? That, and ironically, this is a biblical principle. It's called sowing and reaping in a typical sense. In other words, you reap what you sow. If you were to sow seed into someone else's field, well, guess what? Somehow it ends up in your field. Well, how did, I, I sowed it in their field. How did it get into my field? I, it's sort of hard to describe how that works, but God has a great sense of humor in this as well. And he's not blind. And so as a result, when we behave in a certain way, if we remain unrepentant in that way, it actually creates an opening and a vulnerability to the same behavior coming back upon us. So this is how I say it. Unrepentant evil dished out means evil comes back upon you like an avalanche. Now, this is a picture of that in World War I. Now, most of what we see in World War I is this in summary. The Germans are going to dish out evil. When they go into Belgium, Belgium they are go, it's called the Rape of Belgium in the very beginning of World War I, and it's terrible. And they're going to actually bring Belgians in as slaves to support their war effort. I mean, Belgium is a neutral country. And so, and Germany has pledged, Germany itself has pledged to protect the neutrality of Belgium. So this is an atrocity at a very high level, and yet Germany justifies it because it's war. And Germany for its own survival needs to do this. However, it's like, for your own survival, you need to do that to Belgium? I'm having a tough time swallowing that, right? But all throughout this war, you're gonna see Germany violate Hague Treaty agreements where they say, okay, we'll never do this. And they sign the paperwork and say, we will never do this in war, and then they violate it. But it's for the sake, sake of, uh, of Germany. Like, for instance, uh, chemical warfare. They have vowed not to use chemicals as a weapon, and yet they take off uh, you know, the canister lid and let the, the chemicals start crossing the field, and the, the soldiers on the other side are like, what's that? It's like a green cloud. And then suddenly they find out what it is. And, I mean, it's horrifying. And what the Germans are going to put out, ironically, over and over and over again, as this war begins to crescendo, is going to come back on their head. I mean, it's a great picture of this lesson, even though it's really sad to look at. Obadiah 1.15. So this is speaking to the nation of Edom for their mistreatment of Israel. For the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return upon your own head. And so what you see in the biblical sense is that this behavioral quality. Now, I, I also want to show you that the inverse is also true. That what you reap, you sow. I'm uh, sorry, what you sow, you reap. Uh, in other words, when you sow evil, you reap evil. When you sow judgment, you reap judgment. But what happens if you were to flip the storyline and actually show, sow love and mercy and kindness? And that's the key and the crux of uh, how God's kingdom works. But could war be an exception to the rule? In other words, all right, I recognize that I'm supposed to treat my neighbor a certain way. Germany is, for all practical purposes, a Christian country. However, the leadership of Germany has been overtaken by a secular mindset that is controlled by evolutionary thought. And I've mentioned this in the past, where there's an anti-Christ mentality at the very leadership of Germany. Even though 80% of the country or higher is Protestant Christian. Isn't that interesting? And so a lot of what is happening in Germany, in a strange way, we can identify with here in America where the behavior of the government doesn't necessarily re represent the heart of the people always. And so in this, is it okay to violate your neighbor if it's a time of war? I mean, come on, there has to be some exception to this. And this is the way the Germans think the entire time. It's like, well, it's war, therefore we can violate Belgian neutrality. Oh, it's war, therefore we can violate you know, uh, the submarine uh, you know, declaration that we have to declare ourselves out of the water before we strike uh, a, a merchant ship. 
oh, well, it's, it's war, therefore we can take the lid off the top of our canisters and let the poisonous gases uh, kill uh, the, the opposing armies. You know, th that's just not the best way to think through things. Because it's war, now we have a license to do things. Many people in government think that, that the ends justify the means. Because it is government, because it is important, it's big, therefore we don't need to behave according to God's word. And actually, if you were to think through it, if you study government, you can, you can reason that way pretty, pretty easily. It's like, oh, I, yeah, this is why we can violate this treaty. It's because it's for the safety of our, our country. And it's a very interesting trap that we can step in as believers as well, because we can, the Puritans called it makeshift rationalizations, where we can come up with reasons and excuses to loopholes to get ourselves out of responsibilities that we know we should carry out. So there's a magazine article called The Devil in the Boxcar. It comes from a magazine called Providence. And that's what I'm basing a lot of this on. It's very interesting. And so listen to this. It was spring, uh, the, guy, the guy that wrote it is Paul Kengor. It was spring 1917. The Great War mercilessly staggered on. By the time the catastrophic meat grind was over, upwards of 10 million of the continent's young men would lie pulped across the fields of Europe. Uh, enemy is spelled very oddly in that title. Uh, but it's, it's supposed to say, an enemy 10 times greater. How could anything be worse than the meat grind of World War I? World War I is going to stagger the world. The world has never seen anything quite like it. And yet something is lying in the shadows that is being birthed out of the evil of World War I that is going to be 10 times worse than World War I. And if you could believe this, it's not World War II that I'm talking about. It's what we're talking about today that is going to come out of the shadows of World War I. And in this very storyline, I'm showing you the beginnings of it. And Mathematically speaking, it's likely far more than 10 times. However, because the records that were kept don't always allow us in to see how truly bad it was, the best guess we have is that it's at least 10 times worse. A still deadlier force was about to be unleashed that would be in the long century ahead, that would in the long century ahead annihilate 10 times the dead of World War I. Hitler himself is going to be responsible for about 10 million deaths. Okay, now, one person being responsible for that many deaths, that's extremely uh, heinous and horrendous. However, what is taking place uh, to the Northeast is going to be responsible for so much more. And that's what's interesting. When you think of the greatest evils that have ever been on this earth, Hitler is usually right at the top. And yet, and I'm not trying to defend Hitler, believe me. However, what Hitler participated in was small potatoes next to the disasters uh, up in the Northeast. The Exiled. There's a character that is currently living in Switzerland, uh, and he has been kicked out of Russia by Nicholas II as a dangerous man. And he has dangerous ideas. A character named Karl Marx is going to put together an idea of how governments and people should interrelate. And it is a dethroning, it's an idea that dethrones kings and causes smaller people to have more voice and power. Most of us would say that doesn't sound like a bad idea, right? However, the way it's, it's, it works is in and of itself not totally evil. However, for some strange reason, evil seems to gravitate towards this model of government more than any other model. It seems to free up evil to function. If evil can take over this Marxist form of government, it has great power to leverage. And it justifies itself under the fact that it's a government for the people, for the small people, for the peasants, and it dethrones the monarchs. And so it's very, very appealing to the masses when they first hear about it. This man, the exiled, is what I'm calling him right now, is kept at bay until now. A vicious revolutionary had long been kept at bay. He had been in exile in Switzerland, walled out of the motherland. The dangerous man. 
Vladimir Lenin. Isn't that an interesting picture? Uh, it's mo- a lot of the pictures of him are just paintings. And so, but it's, it's fascinating just to have a photograph uh, of him. I'm going to give you a quote from Lenin just to give you a tenor of his life and what his belief system was. We must hate. Hatred is the basis for communism. I don't know if you've noticed in America lately a swing towards this same ideology. Now, I don't think anyone has gotten up and said, we must hate, or have they, right? However, what you've noticed is a very sharp combativeness amongst ideological differences, where it used to be like, okay, well, I disagree with you, and I think you're dumb. Now it's, I hate you. Now it's, I want you dead, which is exactly what Lenin sponsored. Lenin sponsored a hatred of the opposite ideology, a vengeance, a terror, that the way that you bring about your form of government is you must hate. It's the secret to success. It's the secret sauce. Now, what's interesting is you cannot get anything more opposite of the kingdom of heaven than this. The very... uh, This is something that he's going to speak to his commissars, which are the leaders in a Soviet form of government. Jesus, when he speaks to his apostles, his disciples, is going to say something so different. It's like, we must love. Love is the basis of my kingdom pattern. Isn't that interesting? Just to sort of see the paradoxical uh, contrast here that we have something that is anti-Christ. It is anti-everything that God is. And when you take God out of a country or a territory of the world, you see the vacuum that is left. Because the principle of life, you know, if you were to try and uh, measure it, let's just say, let's put death on a, a table and let's try and measure it and examine it in a scientific lab. There's actually nothing to measure. Death is not something you can measure, quantify, weigh. It's the absence of something. It's the absence of life. Life you can measure. Death is merely when life is gone. It's the absence of it. Light and and darkness are the same. If you try and measure darkness, there's nothing to measure. It's, It's nothing. It's the absence of something. It's the absence of light. Light you can measure. Darkness is simply the absence of it. So when you remove life, when you remove light, what you have is a void. And that void is very haunting. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And to the Germans, these are desperate times. The Germans are hanging by a thread. The Germans are a feisty lot, and I'm going to acknowledge that. In studying them in in World War I, I'm, I'm impressed at so many levels with their uh, with their ability to get back up off the mat. They get knocked down and they're just like back up. And even though they're staggering like a punch drunk fighter, they just keep swinging. And you have to say, that's pretty amazing because Great Britain has unlimited resource to draw from. France has dominion and commonwealth nations as well. And so we have like Canada, we have India, we have Australia, we have New Zealand. We have so much strength that is coming into this. And now America awakens. And America is going to awaken and declare war right before this story happens. So that was April 6th. I want to say this, I think, is April 10th of the same year. So this is the Germans' response. We need to take out Russia so that we can take all of our strength and knock Great Britain and France off the Western Front before America can get here. So this is the thought. So desperate times call for desperate measures. If you're the Germans, what do you do? You need to take out Russia. Russia is, un- is unstable. They just, you know, their, their king of 300 years, the Romanov line, has been ruling Russia for 300 years, and Nicholas II just abdicated his throne. You have instability. What does Germany want to do? They want to knock over that instability. They want to, they want to see it crumble. They want to see them out of the war. And if they can get Russia out of the war, they could win this. Because then they could take millions of troops and throw them into the stalemate and break through. I mean, it really does make sense. So we have another dangerous man. And his name is Eric Ludendorff. 
it's tough having this guy have my name. Uh, it really is a, a rough one for me. It's probably the way Karina Zimmerman feels with Arthur Zimmerman. You know, it's one of those things. Uh, I have a friend named Aaron Burns who is, when we talked about this very thing, he said, uh, yeah, and there's a character named Aaron Burr in history, and he's, he's sort of like a Burr in his saddle too. You know, it's like when, you, when something is just close enough, you're like, I have nothing to do with him, right? And so Eric Ludendorff is uh, a very prominent German at this exact point in time. He's basically beginning to rule the government at this stage in the war. And he's going to probably be the most powerful man in Germany, even more powerful than the Kaiser himself by the end of this war. Okay, so you see the momentum shift towards Erich Ludendorff. And this man is at the helm making a decision at this exact point in time. And when I call him a dangerous man, it's for the same reasons I would call Lenin a dangerous man. I'm going to give you a quote from Eric Ludendorff, which will help you understand why I consider him a dangerous man. Oops, uh, I wonder if I, I forgot to add it into my keynote. Oh, that's terrible. Uh, oh, that's, that is rough. Uh, all right, so I, I can never quote someone directly, but basically he's like, I, uh, I reject Christianity because it's Jewish, and, and then he criticizes it a few more times, and it says, and it teaches peace on earth. He says, the days from the cross are marked and the finish of Christianity must be fully eradicated from Germany. Okay, so that's a paraphrase. Sorry, guys, that I don't have the quote on the, on the screen. This guy is Antichrist. Okay, so it's interesting that what we're going to see is evil begin to take the helm in Germany. I mean, Germany was already being ruled by some very unstable characters, but now you're going to see evil step into the place. Isn't that odd that I have to have a name that is close to this guy? You know, when it comes to World War II, this guy is going to be the chief sponsor of Adolf Hitler. So he's not only the key character in this one that is going to help Lenin get out of Switzerland, but he's also the sponsor of Adolf Hitler. We're talking about one, of the, one, uh, one single man that is probably going to wreak more devastation to the earth than almost any other. Right here. And his name is not altogether that different from mine, okay? Do you understand why I'm a little uncomfortable? Okay, uh, I mean, Aaron Burns with his Aaron Burr, that's like nothing, you know, come on. Germany and the Central Powers had been at the throat of Russia and the Allies since the guns of August began smoking in 1914. But time was turning against them. Ludendorff wanted Russia out of the war badly, especially so he could move his armies to the Western Front to fight the British, French, and Americans, the latter of whom days earlier had officially entered the conflict. On the 10th of April, 1917, remember, America is going to declare war on April 6th of 1917, in the dark of night, a sealed boxcar passed through Germany. Hidden inside was a devil named Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. You know who's behind Lenin getting out of Switzerland? Eric Ludendorff. Eric Ludendorff, as his means of destroying the Russians, is going to send into Russia Lenin. That's his secret. It's like chemical warfare, except for it's ideological this time. And he is going to, instead of put it in a canister and take off the lid, he's going to put it in a boxcar and seal it so that it would make it all the way through from Switzerland, through Germany, and up to St. Petersburg or Petrograd and then unleash it, take the lid off, and let Lenin do what Lenin only can do. And this is going to actually be exactly what Ludendorff wanted. It is going to destabilize Russia to the point where it is going to collapse. Yes! Now remember what this message is about. It's about things returning on your own head. Mm, just remember that. Just a little you know, thing to hold on to. A day earlier, April 9th, 1917, Lenin had departed Zurich, Switzerland for the 2,000-mile journey to St. Petersburg, Russia. Lenin was key to a takedown of Russia. German officials didn't like Lenin and his Bolshevism. Now, think about this. German officials, Ludendorff hates Lenin. He hates Bolshevism. Every German considers Bolshevism Jewish. And uh, Ludendorff is about as anti-Jewish as you get, okay? Now think about who he's going to sponsor in World War II. 
In other words, he's anti-Jew, which to him means anti-Bolshevik, which is sort of to us is anti-communism, right? Or some of us would say anti-liberal, and we'd be like, oh, I'm going to vote for Ludendorff. No, no, do not vote for Ludendorff. Ludendorff is the worst situation of that which is anti-liberal. Okay, there's two extremes that you can go. You can go anti-liberal and you can go anti-conservative. Either hyper that you could go politically leads to killing your opponent. There is a territory of love that Christ has invited us into. It is not politically charged, it is Jesus charged. And that's how we live our life. And so Ludendorff and the rest of the German officials hate Lenin. But they disliked the prospect of surrendering to Russia even more. So they're going to take something that they hate, Bolshevism, and a radical leader of it, and they're going to release him in St. Petersburg. The Germans are going to do this. Ludendorff himself is heading this up. Among those insurgents, there were no worse agitators than the exiled Russian communists. From the very early months of World War I, writes British historian Martin Kitchen, the German government had been in touch with exiled Russian revolutionaries, many of them Bolsheviks, in the hopes that they could be used to undermine the Russian war effort against Germany. So from the very beginning, Germany's communicating with them. They're in exile. I don't know if all of them were in Switzerland. But they're communicating with them, coordinating uh, a plan. In other words, they don't want the war with Germany. And Germany doesn't want Russia to be fighting the war, so, hey, we might be able to help each other. Now, on the heels of American entry and the abdication of Tsar Nicholas II, the German high command felt both an urgency and an opportunity. They conspired to repatriate, repatriate the Bolsheviks tip of the spear, Lenin himself, along with 30 other co-revolutionaries, including the likes of Karl Reddick, the future Comintern, the Communist International head, Grigory Zinoviev. Sorry, guys, I'm not going to do good on that last name. All of whom were opposed to the Tsar and Russian liberals. All of this was done in the hopes that they would topple the Russian provisional government, notes Kitchen, and sue to bring an end to Russia's involvement in the war. And so Ludendorff, with the Kaiser's blessing, arranged to facilitate Lenin and his cohorts return to St. Petersburg. The Kaiser even financed it. So Germany is actually going to finance Lenin going from Switzerland to St. Petersburg. That's an interesting decision. Uh, Germany can't stand Bolshevism, but they're going to like sponsor this? Yeah, because it could mean the end of Russia. So do unto your neighbor as you would have them do unto you. And so this is a classic illustration of doing unto your neighbor what you would dread ever having been done unto you. The delusion of controlled sin. Where sin is present, man is never in control. There's this notion that we have, and it's, it's an odd one that we sometimes facilitate and, uh, and encourage in our life, and that is, hey, I can control this. You ever heard uh, you know, th that person that struggles with alcohol and someone's like concerned about them? It's like, are you sure that you're not having too much? Seem like you're drinking a lot lately. Like, look, I'm fine. I can stop whenever I want. You ever heard that, that statement? It's like the famous last words types of, type of statement. Because technically, they don't understand their spiritual makeup when they say that. You think you can stop whenever you want. But you're actually not the one controlling your body right now. You're being controlled by something. And it's either going to be the Spirit of God or it's sin. And so when you've given way to sin, sin controls you. It does. And as a result, it will have the final say in the situation. And it's interesting because in this situation, the Germans, especially Ludendorff, who's heading it up and conspiring to do this, is thinking this exact thought. Because people are like, are you sure you want to do this? Aren't we going to be loosing like a plague uh, to the northeast of us. I mean, if Russia gets a hold of communism, I mean, we're right next door. It's like burning down your neighbor's house and just hoping the flames don't, you know, jump over and, and grab yours. And Ludendorff's like, I got this totally under control. Totally under control. This is what Ludendorff said. Lenin will overthrow the Russian patriots and then I will strangle him. Him and all his friends. Uh, these are very pleasant characters we're talking about, guys, okay? 
Now, what's interesting is in World War II, you're, going, you're not going to have Ludendorff and Lenin. You're going to have Hitler and Stalin. And it's called the Eastern Front of World War II. And it is the worst thing you could ever study in all of world history, as far as I'm concerned. It's evil fighting against evil. And Hitler is going to declare what we could call a termination war. And uh, it's, that's not the word I was looking for. It's not a termination war. What's, what is it? Um, an extermination war. So in other words, usually in war you fight soldiers. When Hitler sends off his troops, he's dealing with what was left behind here by Ludendorff, and he calls it an extermination war. You kill soldiers, yes, but you kill everyone. Old people, women, children. Everywhere you go, exterminate everyone. That's how World War II to the east is going to be fought. To the west, they fight it to the west against the French, against the British, and against the Americans, completely different. They don't have the same command. But against the Bolsheviks, against the communists, they're to exterminate. Now, in World War II, we're going to see a similar dynamic that the evil that Hitler is going to perpetrate against the Soviet Union then is going to come back upon his head. Uh, and you could almost say tenfold. It's a very, very uh, dastardly thing. And guess how World War II is going to end. I feel like I'm giving a spoiler. Uh, I, shouldn't even, I should make you guys study this out. This is ridiculous that I'm just giving this to you. However, it's actually the communists that are going to come into Berlin, which is where East Berlin comes from. In other words, you're going to see communism actually destroy Hitler. Where is that starting? Right here. In other words, what, what Ludendorff is starting is actually going to come back, not just on his head, but on all of Germany and its history. Richard Pipes, who's a professor of Russian history, says this, the October Revolution, now I haven't told you about the October Revolution. We have a February Revolution, which I have mentioned, and that's going to be the fall of the Tsar. And so the, you know, Nicholas II is going to be uh, removed, and now we have instability. And a temporary government of Kerensky is going to come in, and there's going to be an eight-month period, and then there's going to be a revolution. Why? Who, who's in charge of that? That's Lenin. Lenin is marshalling his opposition to this government, and he's going to overthrow it. It's called the October Revolution, and in October of 1917, which is technically November of 1917 because of their calendar differences, not November for us, is going to be a shift that is going to change world history. And this is what Richard Pipe says. The October Revolution is arguably the most important event of the 20th century. It is my considered judgment that had it not been for the Russian Revolution, there would very likely have been no National Socialism, probably no Second World War, and no decolonization, and certainly no Cold War, which once dominated our lives. One of the things I said in the very beginning is that World War I is a disaster. I mean, just from the war itself, there's about 10 million casualties, 10 million dead. Communism very easily could be described to have killed, even in a 40-year period, over 100 million, very likely over 140 million people. And so that's why it's hard to even swallow, because it's so extreme what it has done to this world and even how it has affected our world. Now, some of you grew up in the Cold War, like I grew up and we had a Cold War. When, when I was in school, we were always hearing about uh, the Soviet Union, and we, we had to learn about nuclear holocaust. So it was very edifying uh, for us to study all these things. Had to watch videos of what nu nuclear holocaust would do. They had their nuclear weapons aimed at us. We had ours aimed at them. Oh, this is wonderful uh, food for thought. And yet that's how we grew up, and many generations have grown up under that, under the threat of communism, under the threat of the red uh, invasion. And so this is all starting right here with a train car that is sponsored by the Germans to go into St. Petersburg. I mean, don't, I don't know how many of you have ever had that feeling. You wish you could go back in history and change something, just one thing. And there's multiple things in World War I. Like, for instance, we could just start with Gavrilo Princip's gunshot. And what you'd want to do is bump his arm a little so that he, he misses the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. 
Of course, then some of you that are wise would say, something else will start the war. All we're waiting for is one more piece of straw to break the camel's back here. And you'd be right. Okay, so maybe that wouldn't have changed history. Maybe it would have been something else that started World War I. However, there's other moments where you're just like, if this happens even one minute earlier, oh, this happens one minute later. There's so many factors. Like, for instance, if the Germans don't unleash their, their uh, unrestricted U-boat warfare, then Russia, the, all of these things are going to happen differently. I mean, almost everything. But, for instance, then if the Russian Revolution had still taken place, then Germany wouldn't have released those U-boats, which wouldn't have awakened America. America wouldn't have come in. We could have a completely different world that we live in even now. And so there's so many different factors that take place. Even if you look at the Battle of the Marne back in 1914, which is so impossible, so impossible that the French survived 1914. And yet it's because von Kluck, who's the general and the commander of the first army, who's going to take Paris, is going to turn to his left. And he's going to expose his flank. And it makes total sense to the Germans when he did it. However, that's going to open him up to an attack from the beleaguered French who were then going to destroy the Germans in that situation and survive 1914. And as a result, a stalemate is going to ensue. And now we're in 1917. And if all of the war had ended then, we don't have a Russian Revolution. And if we didn't have a Russian Revolution, Lenin is never going to get out of Switzerland. You follow me? All these different things that could, but it doesn't do us any good to live there. We live with the reality that we have and we respond to it accordingly. But it is haunting to recognize cause and effect that when you sow weeds, you reap weeds. When you sow evil, you reap evil. Paul Kengor in his article, The Devil in the Boxcar, says this. Lenin's train arrived in St. Petersburg on April 16th. The Russian provisional government of Alexander Kerensky, which had been in charge since the Tsar's abdication in early March, would not hold up. By October, Lenin's Bolsheviks would seize Russia in a coup, followed by a bloody three-year civil war waged against the Mensheviks. The Bolsheviks would prevail, and Russia, the world, and the century to come would never be the same. The long nightmare would begin. The very instant the monarch, speaking of Nicholas II, cut himself loose, the wires snapped and the entire edifice fell in a heap. The communist takeover of Russia has proven to be the most colossal case of political carnage in history. World War I might have been limited largely to the farms and fields in isolated parts of Europe, but the devilish twin sons that had helped spawn Bolshevism and international communism would infect everything from the sugar fields and coffee farms of Cuba and Ethiopia to the rice paddies of Cambodia and the snows of Siberia. In other words, this spread all over the world. And many of you understand there's still countries today that are controlled by this uh, evil. And so it's not just that it affected Russia, it spread. That is, quite literally, one extraordinary result from one simple and in all other ways quite unextraordinary railway journey. So here's some paintings. Uh, there's a lot of paintings. The Soviets have, it must have sponsored some kind of artistic thing, you know, where like paint pictures and we'll give you money or I don't know what it was, but there's loads of uh, art that is de devoted to uh, this, this season of history. You'll notice uh, there's Lenin, you know, and he's surrounded by a whole bunch of cheering crowds. There's a whole bunch of pictures like that, by the way. And to his right is a character that my guess is, because I've never studied this, but I'm guessing it's supposed to look like Joseph Stalin. And if you look at this next picture, you're going to see the same character, Joseph Stalin, to his right there. And so I think these are more symbolic pictures of showing sort of the understudy and the child or the protege uh, of the master. And Marx, here, this is what's ironic. Most of us have a very negative view of Marx, and I'm not saying you should have a positive one. However, Marx probably would have never wanted to release any of his writings, any of his thoughts, if he knew someone like Lenin was going to take them. Because this isn't even what Marx would have intended. Yes, bad ideas sponsor worse ideas, okay? So that just go, if you go against truth to start with, and you start with something like evolution, evolution, Darwin would have never thought of Hitler as an end result of evolution, and yet that's what it spawned. 
And so anytime you go away from the biblical premise point and you eradicate God from the, uh, the situation and from your thinking, you end up with a vacuum. That's where the devil loves to take it. Back upon your own head. Evil dished out means evil comes back upon you like an avalanche. So here's the scripture we read in the beginning. For the day of the Lord, this is in Obadiah 1.15, for the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return upon your own head. That's what's called the great white throne of judgment right there. And that's, I mean, can make us tremble. Uh, There's no doubt about it. And every single one of us in here has, has a lineage that stems from Adam. And when one man sinned, one man known as Adam, that sin was passed upon us all. That judgment came upon us all. And all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God is the other explanation that we get in Scripture. Every single one of us technically has something that will come back on our head that is just and deserved. But there is a hope and there is good news that enters into this storyline in and through the person of Jesus Christ who is going to bear that just penalty upon his head. And in so doing, he's going to crush the head of the serpent, that which is inciting this very breakdown in the first place. And however, this truth is still a truth. The fact that Jesus bore our penalty does not eliminate the fact that when you deal in evil, you receive evil, evil back. When you deal in sin, you receive the repercussions of sin. As I've said before, when you plant weeds when you, when you, throw, when you uh, throw out weeds, weed seeds, sounds funny, you reap weeds. Whatever you reap, you will sow. Did I do that again? Whatever you sow, you will reap. Boy, I don't know how many times I've said that wrong this time. I don't know why I'm doing that. Judges 1-7. So this is in the takeover of Canaan, and you see the Israelites coming in and sweeping through the territory, And there is evil that has dwelled in the land of Canaan. They have prospered evil. Now God is coming to bring judgment. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. Then they brought him to Jerusalem and there he died. It's a rather sad (laughs) statement. But this king himself acknowledges it. He recognizes because his, what was it, his thumbs and his big toes are cut off. And now he has become subservient to uh, Israel. And he remembers that he had done that to 70 other kings that used to hang out underneath his banquet table without their thumbs and toes and, and go along like dogs looking for scraps. He had done this, and now he is reaping what he sowed. I got that right that time, right? Did you guys hear that? All right, that was impressive. Ezekiel 35, 15. As you rejoiced because the inheritance of the house of Israel was desolate, so I will do to you. You shall be desolate, O Mount Seir, as well as all of Edom, all of it. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Edom rejoiced that the inheritance of the house of Israel was desolate. And as a result, they will be desolate. Matthew 7, 2, For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And so this is a critical concept that we understand, at least at a basic level, and that is that when we measure out judgments, when we are harsh, when we have that critical attitude towards others, it is measured back to us. That is just the nature of even the systems of this earth that God has created. And Jesus is explaining that to us here. There is something that changes that pattern. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, all of us, according to the pattern of this earth and the way things work, are deserving of judgment. According to God's system, the the judgment will come back on our heads. We have issued forth a life of sin, and the result of that is death. However, there needs to be an intervention of some kind for us that will change this pattern. And when we humble ourselves and when we repent of participating in this pattern, participating in a behavior that is actually spreading evil instead of stopping it. And we believe in Jesus Christ, we transfer into his kingdom and into his pattern. His pattern is completely other than the world's pattern. 
So here's a good question, but I thought God was a God of mercy. So when you say these things, like it returns on your own head, it's like, I thought God was merciful. And he is. So how does this fit in? Well, let's look at this scripture here, James 2.13. Now, there's another part to this scripture that I'm just about to put on the screen for those of you that might be sensitive to that. It's like, whoa, you're taking out the best part of the scripture. I know that. However, I want you to see this part. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. You see, God is a God of mercy, but unless you come into agreement with him, Unless you humble yourself and acknowledge that your mercilessness, it was wrong, then actually you will receive judgment without mercy just as you gave judgment without mercy. And it's the same principle in Scripture that you see in regards to forgiveness. That God has a floodgate ready to open to offer forgiveness to you, but you stop up that floodgate when you don't allow forgiveness to flow out of you. It's like a pipeline that is pressurized with grace. God is ready to give grace to you, but the moment that you say no to giving the grace to someone else and you don't forgive and you don't show mercy, it's like the equivalent of turning the gate valve and stopping up the grace in your own life. And as a result, you begin to wither. You begin to receive in this body the just penalty that is yours, not because you don't have access to the grace, but because of your unwillingness to give that which is true, your unwillingness to give mercy, your unwillingness to give uh, forgiveness, your unwillingness to give the kindness that God is giving to you, you end up stopping up the flow of grace into your life. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And you could say he gives judgment to the judges. He is merciless to the merciless. In other words, if you don't humble yourself and acknowledge then God's grace gets cut off, not because he doesn't have it, and it's not because he's not merciful. It's that you are not participating in agreement with who he is. And so as a result, just like in Germany, Germany is going to wreak havoc upon Russia. And ultimately, Russia is going to wreak havoc upon Germany. And it's a long, sad story. I mean, technically, and I don't really like focusing on the sadness of the story. I would rather look at the good news of the fact that Jesus Christ has interposed his precious blood and given us an opportunity to actually repent. I mean, it's truly remarkable to think that though we deserve judgment, we deserve exactly what Germany is going to get in World War I and World War II. That's what we deserve. And yet God is going to give us not what we deserve, get this, brace yourself for this, but what he deserves. That's what we get. What does he deserve? Uh, like everything, all honor. And guess what? We get to share in his position. Not because of some good deed we did, but because we humbled ourselves and acknowledged that our ways are not fruitful. Our ways cause harm. It's just called confession of sin. It's just humbling ourselves and acknowledging this doesn't work correct. Lord, I need a Savior. And when we do that, we have a Savior in Jesus Christ. So guys, look at this scripture. Now this is the full-on James 2.13. This is the scripture. Now it has its game on. Listen to this. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And then listen to this line. I've, I've underlined it for you just in case. Some of you might miss it. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Fact. God will always give his priority to mercy in our life, in every situation. But mercy needs something to kindle upon. It needs humility. It needs, it needs us to agree with him. But it will always triumph. He is ready to give it. He is ready to dish it out. It is a higher level of behavior. And so God will always go to that first behavior that he has. And judgment is the last in his list. He doesn't want to bring judgment. He will bring judgment. If humility and repentance is not found. If faith is not present. If that agreement with God is never found, then judgment is what is left. However, it is God's design and desire to give mercy. Father, I ask that even in this story, 
you would speak to us and train us and teach us. Lord, many of us have prospered sin in this world. If I could just say all of us in different ways and different gradients and different degrees. But Lord, we want to acknowledge afresh that we don't want that. We want to prosper righteousness in this world. And the only way to do that is for us to relinquish our life, for us to humble ourselves and repent and put that off and embrace you, to hold on to you and say, you are life, you are wholeness, you are health, you are truth. Lord, we cherish your mercy that you have given to us. We deserve judgment, but you have given us something far different. You have given us not what we deserve, but what you deserve. And Lord Jesus, we thank you. And we want to honor you by, by staking claim to that. Lord, it's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.